Good morning. You know, there are times in our lives uh, when we feel a lot like Judas. We, we've done something uh, awful. We've blown it. Not a little way, but a, a, a big way. Um, we're filled with this sense of remorse. Um, we wrestle with that. We begin to get stuck in the muck uh, of shame and guilt. We don't physically go out and hang ourselves, but uh, emotionally we do. Uh, we begin to hear this inner voice in us that whispers to us, you're no good. You're not worthy. You're never going to change. You're not lovable. I don't know any person who at moments in their life does not wrestle with guilt and shame and the need for forgiveness. What fascinates me about that whole issue, though, is it, it, it would seem logically to me that people who are followers of Jesus would wrestle with that less. Right, because at the center of what we believe about our relationship with Jesus is that he forgives us, that he died for our sin. Therefore, we are pardoned. But oftentimes, ironically, it's not believers who uh, have a great sense of forgiveness. If anything, sometimes they're the ones who wrestle the most with guilt and shame. So I've thought about that. I, I have wondered if part of that is because when you come to Jesus, one of the things that happens is you begin to, to have some expectations. In other words, there's a standard now that you are to live up to, right? We, we who are followers of Jesus are to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And we are to love others as ourselves. Those are pretty lofty expectations. And it doesn't take you long to discover that uh, you're not going to live up to them. You're going to fail. And when you fail, what do you do? I want us to wrestle with uh, shame, guilt, forgiveness this morning. I thought it might be helpful to, to talk about a few definitions a guilt is the feeling we have that tells us we have done something wrong. I, I, I think it, it, guilt is like a, an emotional warning light. You know, you have those warning lights on your car when the oil gets too light, low, it goes on and says, stop, put oil in your car. I think guilt is an emotional warning light. It, it, it's telling us that we are doing something that's violating our values, violating our standard. Oh, we're, we're sinning. And it's this uh, emotional thing that goes off in us because it's trying to get us to stop, to do something different. I think sometimes guilt gets out of hand, but I actually think that guilt is something that the Spirit uses us to change and be transformed. In other words, I think oftentimes guilt can be a good thing, although it can turn bad. Shame, however, is a little bit different. Shame comes when we internalize guilt and we begin to believe not simply that we did a bad thing, but that we are a bad person. Uh, 
we may start out guilty, but when it turns to shame and turns inward, shame can disable us because it begins to tack our value as a person. It's not external to us. It's not trying to get us behave, to behave differently because it's attacking the very identity of how we see ourselves. I like what Brene Brown, she's a researcher on this whole issue of shame and has done some great work on it. She says this, she says, I define shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. It is the fear that we're not good enough. I'd add to that, it is the fear that we're unlovable. So that's guilt and that's shame. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is simply to have your slate wiped clean. It is to experience pardon. There's a legal aspect to it and a relational aspect to it and a, an experiential aspect to it. The legal aspect says uh, your pardon, you don't have to pay the penalty. The relational aspect is uh, the relationship of the, with the one you've hurt gets restored and is made right. And the emotional aspect of it is that not only do you know in your head that you're forgiven, but you begin to feel it and experience it, that you're forgiven. How do we live as forgiven people? That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. Let's, let's take a moment and pray, could we? Father, I want to invite you into the midst of this conversation as we look at this passage about Judas. Give us some of your perspective. Give us some of your truth. Help us to understand what we can learn and how we can walk as forgiven people this morning. Do that work of grace in us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We've been in a series called The Art of Life. This morning is the last of the series. We begin Revelation next week. Um, wanted us to spend at least one message talking about these issues around forgiveness because I think they're so, so significant. So I was trying to think through what passage to, to dive into and I was online looking through some messages and I stumbled on this sermon by Dan Meyer that dealt with the suicide of Judas. And I thought to myself, that's a strange place to go to talk about shame, guilt, and forgiveness. Until I read his message and I began to think about the passage and it intrigued me. In fact, I dove into it a little deeper. Uh, some of what you are going to hear this morning are some of the insights from that message. Some of them are just other things that I think the passage kind of reveals. But I think it has some profound truths to teach us. I think the passage teaches us that there are four steps we can take to live as forgiven people. The first step is this. First is simply don't treat your sins too lightly. Um, 
we go back to verses three and four, we read this, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. I think Judas was thinking he could betray Jesus, Jesus would get arrested and be let go, but now he's discovered that Jesus is gonna die. And he's played a part in that. He was seized with remorse. And this word here for remorse literally means to change one's mind. He's seen in a new perspective. So he returns the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest. And notice this, he says, I have sinned for I've betrayed innocent blood. There's not a lot to appreciate about Judas, but I think we can at least appreciate this. He got it. He realized that uh, what he did <laughs> was horrific and heinous. He had betrayed an innocent man and uh, he sinned. Uh, Judas could have made all kinds of excuses. You know, well, Jesus wasn't measuring up to, to being the Messiah. You know, he had talked, I thought about establishing us in his kingdom and I, it doesn't look like that's gonna happen. So maybe I should just make the best of a bad situation and get a little money on the side. I'm sure those thoughts went through his mind, but at this point, he's not making excuses. He's just taking responsibility. I, I think we live in a, a culture that really tries to find solutions to the feelings of shame and guilt. And, and I, I think oftentimes we gravitate towards false solutions. I think sometimes to manage guilt and shame in our lives, what we try to do is redefine sin. Because if we can take a sin that makes us feel guilty and redefine it so it's not wrong behavior, it's not sin, then that should let us off the hook. So uh, I'm a guy and I'm sleeping with my girlfriend or I'm a girl and I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. If I can say to myself, you know, well, this idea of premarital sex and not in getting involved in it. That's just an antiquated idea I learned from my parents. It's, it's not really true. There's really nothing wrong with sex out of marriage. If I can convince myself of that, man, that, 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 that releases some of the guilt and the shame, right? Yeah, the only problem with that is I think most people, even though it might not be well-formed, inside, very deeply, they have a sense, a moral conscience. And even though they may lie to themselves, they know down deep, nah, I know better. Redefining sin doesn't really work all that well. So sometimes what we do is we make excuses and we rationalize. We think that somehow if we can give an explanation for our behavior, that will lessen the responsibility for our behavior. Uh, but those two things aren't necessarily connected. I mean, it's great to explain why you do something, but understanding why you did something doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of doing it. So I lose my temper and I can say, you know, if you knew my father... If you knew how he treated me, if you knew the patterns I learned growing up in terms of handling anger, you'd see why I am the way I am, why I fly off the handle. I'm not responsible because... Well, explanation helps in understanding, but it doesn't let us off the hook. So we redefine, we rationalize and try to explain... Uh, sometimes we, we just blame others, right? <laughs> Adam eats the apple and God confronts him and what does Adam say? Oh, Eve made me do it. You know? 
Judas actually could have said, well, Satan made me do it. In John 13, 7, we're told that uh, after Jesus tells him to leave, Satan entered him. <laughs> I mean, Satan played a role in Judas's betrayal of Jesus, but Judas still understands it's his responsibility. None of that ever lets us off the hook. You know the ironic thing is? We're, we're trying to do all these things to minimize our guilt and shame by trying to minimize our sin, thinking that will get us to forgiveness. But actually it has just the opposite effect. It's like forgiveness is my goal and I want to get there. And I don't see that the only way to get forgiveness is to walk down into the very depths of the awareness of my brokenness and sin. There's no way around that. As long as I'm minimizing what I've done, it's just keeping me away from experienced forgiveness because the first step to forgiveness is understanding my brokenness. It's the only way there. I've always found it interesting that in the scriptures, the way we experience forgiveness in our lives, the very first part of that is not to ask for forgiveness, right? What are we told in scriptures? We are to confess our sin. Sin is simply missing the mark, right? Not living up to the standard. And if we want to experience forgiveness, the first thing we have to admit is that we've missed the mark. In a sense, it's agreeing with God's perspective on our sin. It's almost this notion you can't get saved until you're lost. You can't really experience forgiveness until you've realized the depth of your sin. Because until then, you're just staying away from the reality of what has to transpire. Jesus tells an interesting story. Uh, he, Luke chapter seven, he is invited to the house of a religious leader, a Pharisee, to have dinner. While he's reclining at the table, this, this woman comes in and she's carrying an alabaster jar of perfume. And she comes up to Jesus and she lets her hair down, which is an incredibly intimate act. She pours some of the perfume on Jesus' feet and then with her hair begins to dry them and at the same point, she's just weeping. The religious leader, the Pharisee, looks at this and he's thinking to himself, you know, if Jesus understood what kind of woman that was, a sinful woman, she's probably a prostitute. If Jesus understood what kind of woman that was, there's no way he'd let her touch him. So Jesus uh, tells this man a little story and ask him a question. There's two people. One owes the debt of 5,000 denarii. One owes 50. And... Uh, the guy they owe it to forgives both debts. Who do you think loves him more? And the religious leader says, oh, the, the one who got 5,000 forgiven, more than the 50. And Jesus makes this fascinating statement. He says, those who are forgiven much love much. The deeper we understand our sin, the more we'll relish our forgiveness, the deeper we understand our brokenness, the more we'll understand the incredible love of God. 
So you think, well, okay, Nick, well, do I go out and sin more so I can love God more? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not the point. We forget sometimes when we come to Scripture that the really deep and great sins of the Christian life are not the sins of the flesh. They're the sins of the Spirit. Things like pride and hate. Things like selfishness. You know, it's interesting in our culture, we, we have all kinds of support groups. We have support groups for people addicted to alcohol. We have support groups for people addicted to, to sex. We have support groups for people who can't manage their anger. I had never seen a support group for the chronically proud. I, I've never encountered a, sor- a support group for the habitually selfish. I've never seen a support group for the ones filled with blind hate. But it seems to me those are the things that are far more important to God. Always been fascinating in First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen. Paul is talking about the fact that God forgives sinners, and in that verse he says, "God forgives sinners of whom I'm the worst." This is a strange comment by the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul is this guy who founded the New Testament church, right? Was key to it. He's the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. He's the guy who really has his stuff together. I could understand it if Paul said, I was the worst of sinners after I was persecuting the church and murdering Christians. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I am right now the worst of sinners. And this is something he writes at the end of his life. And I'm wondering, Paul, how how can you say that? Uh, My guess is that Paul, at that point in his life, isn't really wrestling hard against the sins of the flesh. So what's he talking about? You know what I think is true? I think the closer you get to God, God is like a searchlight, and the closer you get to him, the more honestly and deeply you see the reality of yourself. And as Paul in his later years gets closer and closer to his God, he sees more deeply into his heart. He's not thinking about those things on the outside. He's thinking about the core brokenness that's in him. And at that moment, he sees the depravity of his heart. And he says, I'm the worst. Could it be that growth in maturity in the Christian life is really a downward journey into the depths of our heart? Those who are forgiven much, loved much, don't make too little of your sin. The the second step, though, is maybe just the opposite, and that is don't make your sin bigger than it is. Judas falls victim to this. Notice what it says in verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And when he went away, he hanged himself. (laughs) 
say, Nick, how can you make too much of your sin? I mean, sin is a big deal. Yeah, sin is a big deal. It's such a big deal that for us to be rendered forgiveness, the God of the universe had to die for our sin. It's a big deal. He was willing to do it. But there are times when we make too much of it. For example, we make too much of our sin when we make the assumption that our sin can't be forgiven. That, that what we've done is just too heinous, too depraved, too wrong. Surely God can't forgive that. Let me ask you a question. Could Judas have been forgiven? If you understand Christian theology, the answer to that question is yes. Jesus on this cross just didn't die for some sins. He died for the sins of the world. For all of it. Say, well, if Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus, Jesus would not never have gone to the cross. Oh, yes, he would have. It's not that Judas' sin is that much different than Peter's sin who denies him. To be honest, it's not that Judas's sin is much different than my sin or your sin. They're all betrayals of the reality of God in our lives. You know what happens to us? We think our sin is so great it can't be forgiven, but what we're really saying is not that our sin is so great it can't be forgiven. We're really saying, you know, Christ's death wasn't sufficient. Uh, Christ's death was, it's like a scale. We think, oh, our sin is so heavy. But we're really saying, no, Christ's death wasn't heavy enough. Folks, Christ's death was heavy enough to pay for all sin and any sin. It's so funny. We get that when it's applied to other people. Somebody comes to us and confesses a heinous sin. We know, ah, you can be forgiven. But what we believe is true for other people, we have trouble believing is true for ourselves. We make too much of sin when we think it can't be forgiven. We, uh, we make too much of sin when we let sin define who we are. When we see ourselves only as an alcoholic, only as a cheater, only as a sex addict, only as, only as whatever you fill in the word, when we see ourselves that way, we've made too much of our sin because our sin is not us. And when we let our sin determine the value we have as people, we've let our sin become bigger than it is. Because our value is not determined by our behavior. Our value is determined by the fact that we were made in the image of God and he has put his stamp on us. And we make too much of our sin when we assume that it disqualifies us permanently from ever being used by God. God can't use somebody like me. <laughs> I'm too broken. I'm 
too messed up. I'm too flawed. I've done too many horrific things. All that may be true, but it's not too much for him to use you. It's interesting if you go through the history of scripture and look at all our heroes of the faith, what you find is incredibly broken people. Take Abraham, right? We look at him as this great paradigm of faith. Uh, when he sacrifices it, Abraham was a liar. Moves into a country and is afraid somebody's going to steal his wife and thus kill him. So he lies. Tells his wife to lie. Tell, tell him you're not my wife. So his wife gets taken into the king's harem. I'm sure that helped his marriage a lot. <laughs> and not only does he do that once, but he does it twice. He, <laughs> he's no hero. Or take Moses. Moses, is, who is a chronic abuser, has a huge problem with his temper. Never gets over it. Never gets over it. He's guilty of murder. Or take David. Let's be honest about David. David was a rapist, right? Not only did he rape Bathsheba because he used his power to sleep with her, but then when he's caught, he turns around and kills her husband. And along with that, he's a terrible father. He's always absent. He's a horrific man. Or, or, or take Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times. We all think of that. But if you go through the Gospels, Peter's messing up all the time. Or Paul. Paul begins his life as a persecutor of the church who's murdering Christians. It's always intrigued me that when God stands back and says, I, I need two guys to really foment the leadership of my church to establish it for the future. I need two. Who should I pick? You know, he, he doesn't pick the people who have their act together the most. He doesn't pick the people who are living up to the standard. You know who he picks? He picks Peter and Paul, who, who in some ways are the most messed up of the bunch. Why? Because God knows he's establishing this community of grace. And if you're establishing a community of grace, you want people leading it who understand grace. So he's saying to him as a... Who messed up the most? That's my guy. That's my man. Because he who's forgiven much loves much. Don't make too much of your sin. Step three. At some point you have to dare to believe Jesus on the path to forgiveness, uh, um, at some point you have to correct what you've done wrong and seek the forgiveness of those you've hurt. It, it's interesting, when you look at the, the passage, uh, um, Judas is doing some of that. I, I mean, he's taking the money back. He, he, he has this sense of repentance and remorse. He, he gets it. He, he, he even confesses, I sinned. I betrayed innocent. He, he's on the path. But he never gets there. Why? I, I really believe that Judas's greatest sin was not that he betrayed Jesus. I believe that Judas's greatest sin was that he couldn't believe Jesus. Couldn't believe that Jesus could or would 
forgive him. You know, he was there when, when Jesus happened upon this guy Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a traitor to the Rome, to, to, to the Jews. It was, uh, you know, collaborating with the Romans. He was despised. Jesus, uh, Jesus is walking along and sees Zacchaeus and, and, and notices that there's a change of heart in Zacchaeus, that he wants to be a new man. And notice what Jesus said to him. Can, can you give me Luke 19? Notice what Jesus said to him. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Judas was there when Jesus is saying to him, yeah, you joined Al-Qaeda. Yeah, you, 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 you betrayed your people. Yeah, but you, you want to be a different man. And today, I'll make you a different man. The problem is Judas didn't believe it. Judas was there when the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. Uh, 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 um, evidently, they caught her in the very act. I don't know what happened to the guy. I guess they let him go. But here she is, and, and most likely she's a prostitute. And they throw her down before Jesus. She, she should have gotten a front seat at a rock concert. I mean, she deserves to be stoned. But Jesus sees her remorse. And what's he do? He tells these religious leaders, these self-righteous religious leaders, okay, she deserves to be stoned. Whoever is without sin, let them cast the first one, the first stone. And notice what Jesus says to her. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Judas saw it. He just didn't believe it. Judas was there when Jesus told this story about the, the prodigal son. A young man grows up, he gets of age, he wants to go sow his oats, he wants his freedom, so he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance, which is like wishing your father dead. And his father gives it to him. And he goes off and he, he wastes the inheritance on prostitutes and gambling. It's, money's all gone. He wakes one day up in a pig pen and realizes that servants in his father's house are treated better than him, so he goes home. Now everybody listening to the story knows what should have happened. That young man should have been killed. But on his way home, he discovers that his father is out looking for him, waiting for him. And when his father sees him come over the horizon, he, he lifts up the, the, the bottom of his robe, very undignified, and runs to his son and throws his arms around him. <laughs> and Jesus says this, but fa the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and was alive. Again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. But Judas didn't.
question is, do we? Do we believe Jesus when he says you're forgiven? Not always. Do you know why? Because I think in a very subtle way down in the depths of our heart, we don't understand or believe grace. We think that that the only way we're really going to be forgiven is if we can earn it. If we can change and become worthy on our own. You know, if you can't believe that Jesus can forgive you, then you might as well go find a rope because there's no hope. But if you can believe that Jesus in his death on the cross that he went to voluntarily did so so that he could pay for our sins so that we could stand before him forgiven, then we have something to live for. So do we believe it? The last thing, step, is then to find a community of grace. (laughs) It's interesting in in verse four how um, the religious leaders respond to Judas. He comes and he says, I've sinned for I've betrayed innocent blood. And their response, what is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. In other words, (laughs) they're a lot like what the church too often is a place of condemnation. (laughs) Yeah, your problem. Do you know, folks, we can understand in our heads what grace is, but we never understand it with the whole of us, with our hearts, until we experience it lived out. The church is called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. In other words, we're called to be the conduits of grace. We're, this community, are to be the people who make grace real. We're to be the ones who extend forgiveness and acceptance and treat people with value and love. I was having a breakfast with a friend of mine who is working through uh, uh, an addiction and been through rehab and is uh, just struggling mightily and doing well. And we were talking about the support system of guys who went through this journey with him. And and he he made this comment. He said, yes, uh, we are brothers by defect. And it struck me at that moment that that's what the church should be, a community by defect, right? Because what is it that we all have in common? The very start of our Christian life is the confession that we're sinners, that we're broken, that we've messed up. And that our only hope is to find grace in Jesus. That's what binds us together. And it's when we express that to others that grace becomes real. 
for me in my own life. Grace became real when I messed up so badly. I, I put in jeopardy my ministry and, and everything I had done. And it was at that moment that I began to understand grace because I had, I mean, I always understood it theologically. I could give you the definitions. I could, could tell you the ramifications, but I didn't understand it until I needed it. And the way I discovered it was that there was people around me, Larry, Dave, my wife, that stepped up to the plate and showed me grace. We're a community by defect. It's that experience that takes guilt and shame away and helps us experience forgiveness. I like what Benet Brown says. She says, as a shame researcher, I know that the very best thing to do in the midst of shame attack is, to totally, is totally counterintuitive. It's practice courage and reach out. <laughs> She's saying, when you feel unloved, unworthy, no good, you need to find people who, can, you, who you can be vulnerable with who can tell you that's not true. If we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. That's what the church should be about. This morning, we're going to end our service by sharing together in the Lord's Supper. There are two significant things happening in the Lord's Supper. One of the things we're doing is grounding the reality that forgiveness doesn't come to us because some community pronounces it, doesn't come to us by fiat, doesn't come to us because we decide we're forgiven. Forgiveness comes to us because Jesus went to a cross and died for our sin and paid the penalty. And thus, because of his work, we are rendered forgiven. When we celebrate communion, we are marking that reality. We take the bread that represents his body, it's broken for us, and we dip it in the cup, which represents his blood, which is shed for us. And then we eat it by saying, or when we eat it, we're saying, this is true for me. I'm forgiven because of what he's done. But we do that we do that always in the context of the gathered body, right? Always in the context of community because that's the place where that reality gets put into practice and is experienced as real. So this morning, the servers are gonna come and as you come and prepare your heart and you dip the bread and into the cup and eat of it, then there'll be a third person there this morning and that third person is going to pronounce over you a blessing. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go and live as one forgiven because that's what you are. Prepare your hearts and come when you're ready.